So tonight, um, and we've talked a lot about like wounds and healing and kind of letting our Lord into those. And, and so, so I'm going to resolve a little bit because I've shared with you about my own struggles and, uh, and kind of the ways in which our Lord stepped into that space. Um, and because that's the goal, right? That's the goal. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, like when I would go on retreats and the retreat master would just say like, okay, if you want to be a good priest, do X, Y, Z thing. Just do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and then you'll be a good priest. And that's kind of like what I felt like. And, but I also felt like there was this distance, like, well, how do I get from here to there? You know, like, how do I go from here to there? Because it sort of leaves out part of the story when we just sort of look for the end of like, well, how am I supposed to act if I'm a good Christian um, without the story? And that's one of the reasons why, um, why I tend to use a lot of testimony in my preaching because it's just for the sake of it being like an on-ramp into people's lives or an on-ramp for other people. Uh, like when we tell our story, like God created the world and everything was good, then this thing happened and things became distorted. And then this other thing happened, Jesus entered in, it gives people an on-ramp because they can recognize, okay, I'm in the distortion phase, but so were they, and somehow they got out of it. You know, somehow they got out of it. You know, so, so I kind of, you know, like with Engaged Encounter, I've started to try to recruit couples that have a sinner story. And uh, it doesn't, they're not all sinners, but, you know, we used to say, like, okay, did you have, do you have a perfect marriage, and you've always done NFP, and you never, like, had premarital sex, and so we'll hire you. And now I'm kind of like, you had premarital sex, and you had a conversion, you're hired. Why? Because I want people to hear that story, because, like, that's where people are in the world, and they need an on-ramp into the life of our Lord. You know, if my story was, uh, I came out of the womb, swinging the thurible, um, people would be like, okay, that's great for you, but I'm over here. Or sometimes I use the analogy of like, you know, there's, you're driving down this big highway and there's like, you know, this other, like, and there's traffic jam and you're going really slow. And then there's this people in this lane over here, the HOV lane, and they're just like flying down the highway. Like, how do I get over there? There's this big wall and I can't like get there. You know, I need an on-ramp. Right? And the on-ramp is the story of our conversions. And that's how St. Paul operated. You know, whenever he was challenged, he would say things like, I was the worst persecutor of Christians. And people were piling up their clothes at my feet when they were stoning Stephen. And then he who knit me together in my mother's womb saw fit to enter into my life. And now I can't help but to proclaim the gospel. The very person I was going to haul off to prison opened my eyes when I was blind and I was baptized immediately. I mean, he tells the story of his conversion. And so like that conversion in my life, it really like it started when I was in grad school and I was like stuck in, um, kind of stuck in the muck. And, uh, and I was listening to all these talks on marriage and family life and, fatherhood and motherhood and sonship and daughterhood and joy. And I have this professor who's always talking about joy. Um, like, la joya. He would tell the stories about, like, 
the dynamism of falling in love. And he would say things like, you know, a man sees a woman and she makes an impression on his heart, which creates a desire. And the desire moves the man towards the woman. And when he's united with the woman, he has la joya. And I was sitting in the seats just going, I don't have la joya. And so I started to, um, it was like my third year, like my second year, I had kind of this awakening that I know Jesus is doing something in my life, and it's really important, but I have no idea what he's doing. All I know is that I can't go home. And so, so I wrote Bishop Bruskowitz, and I said, can I start a doctorate? Which was my, like, sly way of saying, like, I'm afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Like, I'm not going to tell you I'm not getting my work done. I'm going to tell you I want to do a doctorate because I can't come home. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, great. You'll be great. And then that third year, I didn't get any of my doctorate done. And I hadn't even gotten the first degree done. And I was just stuck. And, uh, and I was, like, really, really depressed. And all of the things I was learning was crashing into my own story, which was so different than the ideal. And I, I ended up going into chapel and... Um, my prayer was this. It was, Jesus, help me to learn how to love the way that I once knew how to love. Like, help me to love the way I once knew how to love. Because I knew in high school at some point I had this conversion. And, and I really felt loved by our Lord. And that was enough to sustain me through many difficult times. And it lasted about until my parents divorced. And then after that, everything kind of started to go awry. So help me to love the way I once knew how to love. And, and I had this friend who was an Alma Mercy sister, and, uh, and I went to her, and I was talking to her about another friend of mine who had gotten in some trouble, and I was like, what do you know about that like, counseling program that you guys run in Alma? And she says, she just looks at me and goes, Father, I've been praying that you would ask me about this. Well, it's not about me. <laughs> you know, she thought it was about me. I was talking about my friend. And when she said that, I was kind of convicted, like, oh, maybe I need to talk to somebody. And so I ended up asking Bishop Bruskowitz to go to counseling at the end of my third year. And, uh, and that, was, that was not easy to make that move. You know, because when a priest has problems, you know, we're not really allowed to have problems. And when a priest has problems, it's like, Going to counseling is committing clerical suicide, you can feel like. Because then it's like, father's on sabbatical. Father's now a hospital chaplain in a hole in the ground in western Nebraska. And I didn't think that's what our Lord wanted from me. And, but I also knew I had this choice. I could either shove all my emotions, all these negative emotions down, and throw myself into my academic work and just become a really good workaholic academic curmudgeonly priest who doesn't really like people or I could take a risk to have joy and taking the risk to have joy meant going to counseling and so when I asked Bishop Bruskowitz he was actually he was extremely kind and he set things up so I would go into counseling that summer um, and I was going to Alma Michigan and so before I went it was about a month before I went um, and a lot of you have heard me tell this story before but it's kind of a reason I'll tie it into the rest of the theme. So about a month before I went, I went to um, chapel, and I was praying over Mary and John at the foot of the cross. I was renewing my Marian consecration. 
And the scene was when Jesus is on the cross and he looks down at John and he says, Behold your mother. And he looks at Mary and he says, Behold your son. And that passage, it always had a lot of content for me because you know, it was a passage I would go to when you know, praying about how my mom had died. And like, well, Jesus gave me Mary to be my mom after my mom died. But when it came up in prayer that time, I just kind of got stuck and I couldn't get forward with it. Like I'd pray it and I'd get stuck. So sometimes like you might feel like, you know, God never answers my prayer. Well, he wasn't answering my prayers either. I was just stuck. Like behold your mother, nothing. And that went on for two or three weeks. And then one day he said, behold your mother. And I had this feeling like this, like warm feeling and unfamiliar feeling, like connected feeling, kind of like butterflies in your stomach feeling. And that feeling was related to a memory. And the memory was of um, this lady who had come to visit my parents a lot. And she sold Mary Kay cosmetics and she was visiting our family. She was visiting with my stepmom. She just shows up, you know, I can hear them talking upstairs. I was downstairs. And when I heard her voice, I had this feeling like this warm, connected feeling. And, uh, and I remember being really confused about it and she left and I went up to my stepmom and I said, am I supposed to know that lady? And she kind of looks at me like, no, well, I feel like I'm supposed to know her. Uh, I don't know. Ask your father. Like, don't ask me that question. And so I never asked that question again. And I just took it at face value that I wasn't supposed to know who she was. And all those warm, connected, kind of good feelings, I just, I'm going to shove those down and never feel those again because they're kind of scary. But when I came up in prayer that time, it was like all these other conversations over 30 years came into light, kind of like a mosaic being put together. And I realized that my mother had cancer while I was in utero. And, uh, and she carried me to term and then she started cancer treatment. So she was 24. She had a newborn baby. She was starting cancer treatment. She had two other sons who were like eight and five and she needed help. So the pastor of our parish asked a family to help our family. And cause they had like four teenage daughters and they would bring us food and clean the house and babysit. And when my mom went into the hospital to die, I went and lived with that family. And the mom of that family was the Mary Kay lady who came to the house when I was older. And so when I realized all of that, I was like, okay, I definitely need to go to counseling. And, uh, and then I went to look for this lady on Facebook cause I didn't know where else to find her and just wondering if she's still alive. Cause she's probably 70 now. And I found one of her daughters and I sent this message like, I don't know if you really remember me, but our parents used to be friends and I'm trying to get a hold of your parents if they're still alive. And within like within a day, I got this message back. How could we ever forget the little boy that God sent into our lives? And in about five emails, I heard more stories about my relationship with my real mom than I'd heard in 37 years. Like I heard about how every day she would call from the hospital and they put the phone to my ear so I could hear her voice. And I never knew that happened. 
Or every day at one o'clock was my time with her, and I would go and like lay in the bed with her, and I never knew that happened. The narrative I was given was, um, your mom, your real mom didn't want to bond with you so that you could bond with your stepmom. But that just wasn't true. So when Sister Miriam was talking about like when your narrative you thought you had isn't your narrative, you know, that's exactly what I went through. And, uh, and then I went to counseling and I went to counseling about two hours away from where this family lives now. So I got to go visit them. And I remember going down there and I'm super nervous because now they have all this significance in my life. And, uh, and I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. And so I get there and I knock on the door and Fred answers the door. He's the dad and he's just like, and he's got COPD now and he's kind of really frail. And he was just like, Hey Sean, <laughs> like totally normal that I'm there. Come on in. You want a beer? So I'm sitting there having a Miller light with Fred talking about whatever golf or something, a stamp collection. And then Mary comes in and she's been out watering plants and she's like very active and starts telling stories about things. And then she says, hang on, I have something for you. And, uh, and she leaves and she comes back with this like big freezer bag. And inside of this freezer bag, she had like all the birthday cards from my second birthday party. So I guess I had a birthday party and people were there and I actually knew the people who signed the cards. And it was kind of like a testimony that like my life was celebrated even right after my mom's death. And she had all the newspaper clippings from my high school career, like swim meets, elected to student government, West Point acceptance. She had a poem the hospital chaplain wrote about my mom and my dad when my mom was dying in the hospital. And she had this red piece of construction paper that says, To Mary Mom from Sean. And you open it up and crayon it says, I love you in big letters. And she carried all that stuff around for 35 years. Like seven times they moved their home just to give it to a 37-year-old priest who had absolutely no idea what it means to be loved unconditionally. Like what it means to be loved without the person wanting anything from me. And that changed everything. Like it changed everything. Like from that point forward... My relationship with Jesus was completely different. Because up until then, I didn't really know what the word son meant. Every time I heard somebody say, like, you're a beloved son, I would think, you're talking to a fifth grader or a five-year-old. Like, that's ridiculous. Can we just talk about, like, the five proofs of God's existence according to St. Thomas and all the things I need to do to be a virtuous person in order to get to heaven? Why do you have to tell me God loves me? When I was in the seminary, like I had this apostolate supervisor and I would go in and I'm like, so what do you want the second graders to know? And I'm thinking transubstantiation and, you know, like what the Eucharist is Jesus and the apostolic succession. And he just goes, I just want them to know that Jesus loves them very much. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, that's stupid. And now like I became the Jesus loves you priest. 
and and not in a way that dismisses all of the other things, but in a way that that's really is the most fundamental thing, and is the basis for the rest of the spiritual life. You know, it's the basis for the rest of the spiritual life. Because, you know, interestingly, like, I had this problem of, like, I don't like letting people take care of me. Surprise. Um, but this lady, like, Mary, like, she could, like, come up to me and put her hands on my face and say, Sean, you have to take care of yourself because we love you. And we want you to know that we love you. And no matter what you do, we're always going to be here for you. And I kind of am just like, oh, that's really nice. You know, like, I let her do that which is amazing. And that's helped me to learn to let our Lord do that. You know, it's helped me to let our Lord do that. And then I found myself more able to be a father because I know what it is to be a son. And other people notice too. You know, like other people notice too. Because like, there's people who have come to me for direction since I came back from Rome and... They would say things to me like, you know, you're different than you used to be. I didn't like you before. Which is kind of like the story of this kid who, after his dad had been clean from pornography for two months, looked over at his dad randomly and said, I like the new dad. I like the new dad. I mean, it's essentially what he was saying to me. And that was only possible because our Lord was able to penetrate all my defenses and all the walls that I put up so that I could figure out that he actually does love me. And it's what he wants to do in all of our lives. You know, it's what he wants to do for everyone. It's what he wants to do for everyone. And when that happens, it happens, and then things are transformed. There's another priest that I've been great friends with for about a year and a half, and he had been stuck in sin. And and then he started going through this healing process, and... Like, he's been really free for the last year and a half. And now he says, like, all these people are showing up for spiritual direction. Like, I don't know where they're coming from. They just show up. Like, well, they just show up because you are changed. You're a new person. No, you're a new person. And so that transition from, like, um, being renewed and restored in my identity as daughter, the fruitfulness of that is that then you, like, really know how to be a mother. No, you really know how to be a mother. And being a mother is, like, the most amazing vocation that God ever created. It's the most amazing vocation that God ever created. And mulieris dignitatum which is John Paul II's document on the dignity of women. Like he writes on, you know, a lot of it is kind of an apologetic and a polemic against, uh, you know, feminism that says like women's value is based on whether or not they can do the same things as men. And he's, he's saying, you know, that God created us male and female. Both male and female are created in the image of God and both have a specific dignity 
but when he talks about motherhood, he'll talk about how like there's a very particular way in which the Lord invites you into his own life. Like a very particular way in which the Lord invites you into his own life. Because through motherhood, you experience being a co-creator with God and in a way that's much more profound than your husbands do. Right? It's just more profound. And we, we live in a culture that says like motherhood and fatherhood are kind of interchangeable. You can have a stay-at-home dad and you can have a working mom. You can do whatever you want to do. But the reality is, like, at a very fundamental biological level, like, motherhood starts at conception. And fatherhood comes later. And you experience in this very intimate way the creative power of God, the welcoming of a new life, the nurturing of that new life. You know, in a way that will be completely foreign to me and the rest of the men in the world. And Gabriel Marcel is a French philosopher. And when he talks about this, he says motherhood is primordial and fatherhood starts like at about age three. Right? Which means like motherhood starts at conception. That's why like in a miscarriage... The mother always experiences the death of a child, and the father experiences more the death of a potential child. And oftentimes women will say, like, my husband doesn't really understand why I'm grieving. Because for him, the child's not there. For you, the child's there. And a father, sort of, his job is to enter into the life of the child once the child's able to separate himself from you. But up until about age three, the kid doesn't care. Like, uh, I just, like, dad's just like somebody who holds me while I'm waiting to be fed. And there's a specific role that fathers have in, like, coming into that relationship and being a bridge to the world. There's another um, psychologist that I wrote a paper on when I was in grad school called Parental Figures and the Representation of God. And, and he talks about how he set out to prove this thesis that like mother, motherhood is about affirmation and presence, and fatherhood is about authority and law. So these kind of stereotypes, they're like gender stereotypes maybe, but what he found in his study was that they were more than stereotypes, that that was actually like how it was perceived, even when it wasn't the reality in that civilization. He also said that those motherhood characteristics, they're primary in mothers and secondary in fathers, and fatherhood characteristics are primary in fathers and secondary in mothers. So it's not a one-for-one thing, and it's not absolute. But there is something to the fact that like, a mother always loves her child as they are. And the verbiage that Vergote used is a father reserves his life or is, reserves his love for the completion of the child's life. It doesn't mean the father doesn't love the child. But it means the father is sort of the one that's like holding this standard out there and saying, come follow me. Right? Come follow me. And the father's job is to point to the future. 
while the mother's job is to be very much present in the present. And those two things are both needed, right? Those two things are both needed. And those two things are both present in God himself. Because in the scriptures, there are many places in the prophets and in the Psalms where maternal language is used. Even Jesus uses maternal language when he says, like a mother who wants to gather her chicks under her wing. So I love Jerusalem. But then Jesus also says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so within God, there is this, like, I have mercy for you now as a sinner, and I'm also calling you to a future of conversion. And we need both things. I once was with a group of priests who had a problem with alcohol, and um, one of the things I thought was very interesting about that was, like, guys are, they're, they're drunk at, like, they've been drunk at youth group or drunk at mass or whatever it was. And they were asked the question, like, well, so what do you do with that? Like, do you go to confession for that? Like, what do you do with that? And they said, well, I don't need to go to confession for that because I know God loves me. Oh, it's really interesting. Because their God image was only maternal and not paternal. Like, only mercy and no conversion, no call to conversion. And then there can be the opposite end of the spectrum where there's only call to conversion and no mercy. And that's when we grow up thinking, I'm never good enough. I'm never going to do the right thing. I'm always doing it wrong. And I don't have a base. Right? Like, I don't have a base. And we end up in this kind of rigid perfectionism. I think it's interesting in the midst of the debate in the church that goes on right now with Pope Francis and all of the things that he does on airplanes and things he says on airplanes and things the media says he does that maybe he did and maybe he didn't do. And, um, but especially after the synod on the family, because there seemed to be this really like polarized argument about communion for divorced and remarried people. And so one side of the argument was that, well, we just need to love them as they are and they need to get like everything as they are, which is like pure maternal love with no fatherhood, called a conversion. And then the other side is, well, they need to get their act together and make sure that they conform to all the rules and then we'll allow them, which is like only paternity and no maternity. It's kind of fascinating because like the synod on the family kind of proved that the church needs both parents and their family like as a church we need to be a two-parent family but a lot of us kind of grew up in or we have friends who are growing up in one-parent families where it's either like all mercy or all authority and there needs to be that balance no but particular to motherhood is mercy you know particular to motherhood is mercy That was the experience that I needed from our Lord, 
in order to become somebody new, in order to rediscover my identity. Because I had tried the authority approach on myself already. Like I had tried being hard on myself. I had tried being more rigid. I had tried getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning and doing a holy hour and flogging myself. And I didn't really flog myself. <clears throat> but I tried all of that stuff, and it didn't work. And I just stayed stuck in this kind of perfectionism and I'm never good enough. And that would lead to like shame. And then that would lead me back to watching 18 hours of TV a day. Like what I hadn't received was that first proclamation of Christ saving love or that first like call to mercy and that first call to conversion. No, which comes first. And so there's a particular place that of intimacy and a touch point with God's love that you have access to that our Lord's invited you into that our Lord's invited you to share. Because you know that like you love your children, no matter what happens. And the question is, do you really, do you let our Lord love you no matter what happens? Because I know lots of women who, like, they love their kids unconditionally, and no matter what they do, it doesn't, like, they're, they're a mom. But they're also really hard on themselves. And they're not very good at receiving the fact that Jesus loves you. And at your worst, he's loved you. No, at your worst, he's loved you. And we have to receive that so that we can learn from him what that looks like. So we can learn from him what that looks like. And... Mary is our ally in that. No, she's our ally in that. Because there's a particular quality in Mary that, you know, we all need, which is her empathy. No, her empathy. And I've been praying a lot with this lately, that Mary is the mother of empathy, Because, like, she, in a particular way, like, she is conceived without sin. And so sometimes when we think about that, and I've thought about this, is, well, she's preserved from original sin, so she didn't have to deal with any of the stuff that I have to deal with. So she just doesn't get my life. But then, the more I learn about empathy, you know, how empathy works is, um, like, empathy is when we feel somebody else's feelings so that we know what they're going through. Right? Particularly mothers usually have more empathy for their kids than fathers. You know, like how many times have you had to say to your husband, hey, you need to go talk to Billy. Why? What's wrong with him? Can't you tell? Uh, no, I thought he just like had a cold or something. Right? Because you pick up on those things. You pick up on your kids' feelings more than your husband's do. And... But the thing that allows us to have empathy is when like, we're in tune with other people. And what gets in the way of empathy is sin. Like, sin gets in the way of empathy. 
So when we're bogged down in sin, we tend to be focused on our own stuff all the time. We're not looking outside of ourselves, and we just don't pick up on other people's feelings as well. So the less I'm stuck in sin, the more I pick up on other people's feelings. So Mary, who's preserved from sin, actually would have the ultimate empathy. Like, if somebody's in the room sad, she's going to pick up on it right away and go, that person's sad. I can feel their sadness. If somebody's joyful, she's going to pick up on their joy right away. I can feel their joy. If somebody's in some other kind of pain, she's going to pick up on that right away, and she's going to be in tune with that. And her empathy was so great that Simeon said to her, your son will be the rise and fall of many in Israel, but your heart too, a sword will pierce. So, like, her pierced heart is because of her empathy, because of her empathy for Jesus, because as she watched him suffer, she felt all of his pain as if it was her own. And then Jesus says, Behold your son, behold your mother. And he gave her to each and every one of us to be our mother, which means that she has that kind of empathy for us. She has that kind of empathy for us. That she knows our sorrow. That she knows our sadness. That she knows our pain. And she responds to that through her intercession for us. Now, Jesus wants to transform your heart. And sometimes that's scary because we're like, uh, what walls am I going to have to take down? Or what am I going to have to change about my life? Or what is he going to ask me to do next? And Mary's there kind of saying, it's going to be okay. You know, I'm here with you. I'm walking beside you. She can be that greatest confidant and ally and support in our lives as we're walking through this conversion process. And because she, in fact, is our mother, And she isn't a mother who's out of reach because of her purity, but she's a mother who is completely in tune with us in our struggles because of her purity. Which means that we can also go to her. And we can learn from her how to show that same love, that same mercy, that same empathic support to our own children, or to any of the children that God has given us.
you know, that vocation of motherhood, it is the most important vocation. It could be the most important vocation in the church because if the point of faith is to entrust ourselves to Jesus, we learn to do that first in a human way when we entrust ourselves to our mothers. And it happens most profoundly in the normal things that you do. Right? And the normal things that you do when our Lord comes in and you just do those normal things with Jesus. You know, people always ask me about that family that took care of me and they're like, were they Catholic? That's what the first question is like, were they Catholic? Like, were they like super Catholic? I'm like, they went to mass on Sunday, but they just loved me. Like, that was it. Like, they just loved me. And funny thing is, like, I prayed my prayers all the time when I was a kid. I always prayed my night prayers before I went to bed. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should die before I wake. Pray the Lord my soul to say, God bless my mom in heaven. God bless Jamie and Johnny. God bless Uncle Harry. God bless, God bless, God bless, God bless. And, uh, and I was the only one in my family who prayed his night prayers, and I always thought that was weird. Turns out, every single one of Mary and Fred's grandchildren pray their night prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. God bless, God bless, God bless. I learned that from them. And there was such a strong association with the love I knew from them, the human love I knew from them, that that was like, I have to do that or I can't fall asleep at night. Till I was like 16. The most important way that I learned that, though, the most important way God's love was transmitted to me, though, was in that very, like, human maternal love that I received from her. You know, and the love that I received from her. Now, that's where, like, Benedict XVI says, the new evangelization is dependent on the domestic church because it's the human space where we encounter Christ. No, and if all that's true, that's what makes it for all of us, priests, lay people, mothers, fathers. The most important thing in our lives is our own conversion process so that like, we continually feed that. So we continually have something to give and something to pass on. And so tonight, as we wind down just spend the remainder of our time just in thanksgiving to our Lord for the ways that he's revealed his love to us. And continuing to ask for that grace, to continually work on our own conversion, to continually be vigilant about our own conversion, to continually grow in our capacity to be loved by him. Most especially that you might be that image of his unconditional love and mercy in the lives of your children and in the lives of all children that our Lord chooses to entrust to you.